This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So one of the big stories today, Carol, obviously is... Mm. The court decision that essentially allows AT&T to move forward with this, really one of the the mega deals of the last couple of years, uh, the combination with Time Warner. So let's understand what it means from a deals perspective and what it means, candidly, from a litigation perspective as well. Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. She is joining us from the nation's capital. Nabila, Nabila, excuse me, Ahmed, uh, Bloomberg News deals reporter joining us there uh, in New York. So, Jennifer, I want to start with you. What actually happened today? Because I have to say, you read, <laughs> you sort of read into this story, and you're like, okay, this was the argument, and that was the argument. But the net effect is the the government lost its, its ability to fight right. this, right? Right, that's right. And the net effect is that the, the appellate court basically completely adopted the district court's opinion here, which was against the Department of Justice. The district court said the dis- Department of Justice just simply didn't carry their burden of showing that something about this combination would cause consumer harm in the future. And that's really the first thing they had to do in order to get further in the litigation. And they didn't get past that first step. And the appellate court said, we agree with this district court on this. And the district court didn't make a mistake. Now, the DOJ can appeal, you know, they, they can try to ask for a fuller panel of judges at the same court to re-review this opinion, or they can try to seek Supreme Court review um, of the decision, but it's not guaranteed that they'll get either one. So done? Jennifer? Well, it could be done. I mean, it it depends on what the DOJ does here. I suspect they'll say something soon, probably in the next day or two. They'll say what they plan on doing. If they do say sooner than February 28th that they are finished and they're not appealing, that leaves AT&T free to go ahead and integrate Turner before February 28th. So, Nabila, come on in on this, because this is kind of interesting. This is the first, what, major merger challenge under President Trump, and he was against this deal, right, on the campaign trail. Exactly. So this was announced during his campaign um, in 2016, and at the time he came out very strongly against it. This is also the first merger of its kind, a so-called vertical merger, that a U.S. government has fully uh, sort of... Uh, challenged um, and went to courts over in about 40 years. So it looks pretty embarrassing for the DOJ, to be honest. And remember, this is their second defeat. So in June, AT&T fought this in court. And at the time, Judge Leon said that that the government's case was gossamer thin and the government appealed anyway, which was much the surprise of a lot of people. And so today, again, the uh, decision by these three judges was pretty, um, pretty clear cut. And, uh, yeah, as Jennifer says, it would be surprising to see them sort of appeal again. So, Jennifer, I want to ask you about a point that Nabila brought up, which which is this idea of challenging a vertical merger Mm -hmm. and vertical versus horizontal is is interesting in its own right. But from a litigation and from a litigation perspective, that wasn't really addressed, though, which is kind of a big question in, in terms of deals going forward. Right. 
You know, it really is a big question because we don't have precedent in the courts for many, many years now as to how to address what the legal standards are for addressing a vertical deal and when a vertical deal may violate antitrust laws. We have plenty on horizontal deals, but not vertical. And I think a lot of people, what are called friends of the court, wrote in to ask the court to do that. Look, we need some precedent here and we need some guidance. But they didn't. And they really didn't because there was no dispute about the law at the district court. So what they needed to review really was a dispute over the facts and how the facts apply to the law in this situation. And they left and, it alone. They didn't opine. Right. And so, so Nabila, what are your deal guys saying uh, about this? Because that sort of vertical, mm-hmm. horizontal yeah. issue, I have to think investment bankers, private equity, uh, all of them are, are looking at this, internal corporate uh, strategists. What do they make of this decision Well, it just forward? means nothing has changed really, right? right. Since before they challenged this, this, uh, this deal, nothing has changed. We're back to the t- status quo. But one of the interesting things uh, that people are talking about is what does this mean for the DOJ going forward? Does it mean they're going to be uh, more challenging because they're smarting from this and they want to win? Or does it mean they're sort of going to go back to their box a little bit and um, sort of pull back from challenging deals in a surprising manner like this? So the first case, I guess, Sprint and T-Mobile is up before the regulatory process at the moment, um, and this could have implications for that. And that's more of a horizontal, right? Or it is. is it- yeah, it is. But it's it's just about whether Macon Delrahim, who was appointed uh, as the head of the DOJ, who really took this on as a personal project of his to oppose this merger, how is he going to feel? And some people feel that after this decision, he is going to be more aggressive than ever before because he really needs a win. Jennifer, one quick question. Just got about 30, 40 mm-hmm. seconds left here. So I don't know. How do we read a Trump administration Justice Department, uh, antitrust department? How do we see it then? You know, it's so hard to see it. When you look at what they've done with Disney and Fox, and there was a, the yeah. quick approval there, and CVS, Aetna, and Express Scripts, you know, other vertical deals, I think they're very unpredictable, and, and it's, it's unclear whether this was really, you know, based on politics or based on antitrust. Jennifer Ree, always good to catch up with you, senior litigation analyst down in D.C. Nabila Ahmed, one of our star deals reporters. We know you will be keeping an eye on all the deal making that happens next and what the regulators decide to do about it. So the way we shop and what we care about when we shop has for many moved beyond just getting the best price. Uh, another factor really shaping our shopping patterns is making a difference or an impact. I see this with my teenage daughter, which leads us to San Francisco, where we find Stacy Boyd. She's CEO at the luxury fashion platform, Alavela. And uh, Stacy, got to say, great to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. And kudos to your team, because they've been reaching out to me, I think, since uh, last summer <laughs> to get you guys on. And I'm so glad that we could finally make it work. Tell us, first of all, what you guys do at Alavela. Oh, I'm thrilled to be on. I'm glad my team was persistent. And at Olivella, the idea is really simple. We sell luxury items with doing good built into every purchase. So you can buy some of the world's best brands from Givenchy to Jimmy, Jimmy Choo to Prada. Um, but with every purchase you make, you send a girl to school who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity. So, Stacey, tell us about you. I mean, how did you get involved in this? I mean, I, I understand that you had a chance to travel with Malala, you know, one of those people who has come on, and she really is known by one name. Uh, but it, what sort of brought you to the, to the moment where you decided, okay, there's a business opportunity here? 
there was this very particular moment on a dusty airstrip in Dadaab, Kenya, as I was standing there with Malala and her father, Zia, and this incredible group of young women, all of whom were receiving a distance education through Vodafone. And I reached into my bag to take out my phone to take a picture of this incredible group of young women, and I realized two things. First, that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And second, perhaps more importantly for what we're doing now, that a fraction of the cost of my bag could have sent a girl to school. Mm. So I came back and I talked to Jimmy Chu and Givenchy, um, Valentino, and Stella McCartney, an incredible group of brands, and said, what if we created a multi-brand retail site with doing good built into every purchase? And they loved the idea. So So we launched with... Sorry. No, no. You know what I'm curious about too is what is it about kind of linking a donation essentially with what, which is what you guys are are doing right with a purchase that maybe gets people off their couch to actually make a donation to a good cause. Well, what I think is incredibly powerful about what what we're doing with respect to girls' education is it turns everyday actions into a force for good, right? And there's something that's incredibly powerful about shopping the way that you would shop at Saks or Net-A-Porter or uh, Barney's or Neiman's or wherever it might be. Um, But instead of just buying something for yourself, that something that you buy for yourself, that beautiful designer luxury item, um, and the genius and the design behind that turning into um, something that unlocks the genius of girls. So to me, that's the really powerful combination of the two. And, and Stacey, what is it that's happened sort of to us as a society, and I think this is a, a positive development, where it, it does seem like we care a little bit more and we're willing candidly to at times you know, pay a premium for brands that we think represent our values. You know, I think about a Tom's mm-hmm. or a Bombas and, you know, others who are building this in, as you have, yeah. into the whole value proposition. What, what, what was the catalyst, do you think, more broadly? Yeah, well, I think it's a great observation. I will say we actually price match on Olivella, so you'll mm-hmm. never pay more on our site than you do elsewhere because we believe that doing good shouldn't cost you more. But I think you are spot on with respect to where we are, you know, as a larger society. I think that everybody wants to be a part of the solution and finding really easy ways for people, again, with their everyday actions, um, to turn into doing some good in the world is is powerful. Uh, And I do think we're at a moment in time where everybody – understands that they need to be a part of the solution, that their decisions matter, um, right. where they decide to shop and how they decide to shop matters. Well, interesting stuff, and people can find out more, because I love the impact, this whole idea of 20% of the sales going directly to benefiting the education of girls really around the globe, and you do have specific partners, so folks can check it out. Uh, just go to O-L-I-V-E-L-A dot com to find out more information. Um, Stacy Boy, thank you so much. Founder and chief executive officer at Olavela. She joining us. Uh, she's joining us on the phone from San Francisco. So, Carol, this is definitely one of my favorite stories in the magazine uh, this week. It has to do with drug pricing, which has been so top of mind. But it really takes us into 
the world of Washington, the world of lobbying. Cynthia Coons just covers this industry so incredibly well. She's with us, with you, uh, there in the yes. Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Cynthia, great to have you with us. So give us some history here, because pharma has been such a powerful force. They've really gotten what they wanted uh, in D.C. to date. Yep. Well, thank you for having me. And that is pretty much what most people who come up against pharma in some way, shape or form say that pharma's got really typically historically has had a bit of an iron grip on Washington, have had been really successful at carving out policies and changing the agenda or moving it in such a way that it works in their favor. And they've been a huge spender. They've been among the top 10 uh, biggest spenders in D.C. for the last in the last decade. So they've had a very, very comfortable sort of lead and position in controlling the narrative in Washington. But that is increasingly starting to change as high drug prices continue to hit more Americans um, in terms of what they actually come to the counter and find themselves paying. It's so timely, right? Because you've got a bunch of top executives. I think it's from seven of the world's biggest drug companies. They are testifying before Congress today, right? So this issue in terms of drug pricing, we know it's been something the president has talked a lot about. And so have other politicians, I feel like, on both sides of the aisle. But it is front and center. So is it kind of, I don't know, the scales tipping no longer in favor of big pharma and more in terms of the consumer and really kind of reining in the price and cost of drugs? Well, what you hit on is sort of the crux of it. The idea that seven executives, mostly CEOs and um, other like sort of leading executives from these companies would even be in front of Congress is almost would have been almost unimaginable a couple of years ago. Like the idea that the spotlight would be on them and that they would have to talk specifically about the list price of their drugs was once upon a time, no one could have seen that happening. What's happened in the last couple of years especially is groups have grown up some in some some funded by other constituents in the healthcare system some get their money from the insurance lobby or from the different sort of middlemen in the system that pharma have been blaming for high prices and these groups though have found a voice and some are actual patient advocate groups that are working to change the story and say hey pharma needs to be accountable for the prices of their drugs so that has actually led to there have been some policy there was a big policy loss for pharma last year in terms of the discounts they had to give senior citizens and pharma was really surprised by that caught off guard tried at least one time and maybe worth looking to bring this back up again in the fall and just decided not to they didn't they realized they didn't mm-hmm. have the political power to reverse that decision but really this idea that they had to come and sit down and discuss list prices and what was explicit about this hearing today was that the the mem- the senators didn't want to hear typical story, which is, hey, the pharma companies typically say, hey, it's these middlemen in the system that are charging fees, and that's why we have to have the list prices we do. To be honest, the the hearing was a lot of the same. There wasn't a ton in terms of new revelation or the companies themselves coming to the fore and saying... But they also used to argue, Cynthia, you know, R&D, it's expensive. We, we, you know, work on a lot of drugs and only a small fraction, you know, ultimately come to the market. I have a brother who's been in the pharmaceutical industry for a long time, and we have a lot of debates uh, when we get together about this. I mean, is that a fair... Are they right? And so that ultimately when something comes to market, they, they've got to charge a lot to kind of make up for those R&D costs and so on. Yep. They definitely also mentioned that today. They That's an, that's sort of the, oh, that would have been sort of pharma's refrain maybe yeah. leading up to three years ago when they said, no, it's the middlemen. So that's sort of part of the, the fabric of their longstanding perspective on why they have to charge what they do. I, it's 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 a tough call. They do invest in R and D. They do acquire a lot of R and D. Usually, a pharma company would acquire about fifty percent of its big hits and 
source it internally. But a lot of that, Good you point. really look back over the history of time, a lot of the seed research to some really successful drugs dates back to the NIH. And whether or not the academic centers or government get the return on investment that the pharma companies do, I mean, if you really want to say, okay, this is the R&D from the actual seed research to the actual patient, some of that is done by the government or funded by the government, but the pharma companies do take a a shoulder, a lot of risk because late stage trials are very expensive. So doing trials on thousands of patients and there could be a safety signal and something could happen at the last minute and they have to either halt the trial or the FDA will say no to the drug. So that is a big economic risk that pharma companies take, but it's, it's worth keeping in mind that that's about half of what they do to bring brand new drugs to market and half of what they do is acquire it from other companies. So, Cynthia, I, w- I want to go back to, to something you said about the money because that, it's so fascinating sort of where it's coming from. You know, you talk about in your piece, John and Laura Arnold down in Texas, you know, very successful investor. He has put a lot of his family's money now uh, behind this. It doesn't feel like these groups are going to stand down or really be satisfied in, until they get what they want. There, there feels like there's some real uh, momentum here. Do you have a sense yeah. of, of why? John and Laura Arnold's role in this is really interesting. So they are providing the funding for um, David Mitchell's group, which is Patient for Affordable Drugs. And they're one of the big groups that have sort of changed and sort of put a real footprint and a branding around this anti-drug price crusade. And David Mitchell's background was in running public awareness campaigns, things like Click It or Ticket or Save Darfur. So he's an expert at the public awareness piece. But but John and Laura Arnold are putting their money in other places too. There's this nonprofit startup generic drug maker that's working with hospitals to help source drugs that are in short supply or shot up in price. And they're putting money behind that too. So their role in a lot of the efforts to sort of disrupt the system as it stands or disrupt the status quo is multifaceted. So it's really interesting to see what they're doing and the ways they're trying to affect change. So un- unless they're the ethos of their sort of initiative or organization changes, I do see them continuing to be a player and continuing to fund really innovative and different ways at coming at this problem. You know this industry, you followed it for for a while here. Do you feel like, I mean, we might be moving into an era where drug prices do come down dramatically? I think the key to that is, is actually probably another hearing away because there's talk of a hearing that the PBMs are required to come in front of Congress and discuss why they play this role and what they do to charge and potentially what drug makers say drive up prices. And it's hard to say anyone hearing is going to make a difference. But if that system is not dismantled, nothing is really probably likely to change because drug makers wouldn't bring their prices down unless there was something that changed about the way the market is structured at the moment. So I think we're kind of a hearing away from really seeing things change meaningfully. I will say more and more conversations. We're all starting to learn, though, how it all works, right, and who all the players are, I feel like, increasingly so, and a lot of it because of your reporting. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Cynthia Kuhn. She's U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Check her out on the Bloomberg at Bloomberg.com and also at Cynthia Coons and her story in the current issue that will be on newsstands later this week. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Home Depot, Jason, today, because shares in the stock just a little bit lower, definitely off their lows of the days after uh, of the day rather after a disappointing slowdown in the company's sales outlook. Seema Shah knows that she's been writing about the results. She's a Bloomberg Intelligence senior consumer analyst, and she joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hi. Nice to have you here. We've been Thank having you. a great little chat before yes. we went on air. <laughs> um, so, Home Depot, tell us about the quarter. 
so basically what happened is I think uh, the street was expecting the comp to be in the four mid single digit range. It came in, you know, lower than that. I believe it was three point seven and, and people kind of got spooked by that. But if you listen to the call, sounds like most of it uh, was unexpected wet weather and wet weather. People don't do the outdoor projects that they normally would. So I look at this as just a delay in sales. And you have to also remember that Q4 is not their biggest and most important quarter, unlike most retailers. It's really the first half of the year. You're going to spring and But then why were analysts so upbeat? Or, you know what I mean? That they had the estimate at like four and a half. I think they were upbeat just because of the way the company had been executing. They had done very well uh, prior to that. And when we'd spoke to the company, even it sounded like things were going better. Um, So I think that's that's what happened with the estimates. And so, Simed, talk to us about the outlook, because obviously with a retailer like this, people Mm -hmm. are so focused on where it goes from here, especially Mm -hmm. given uh, the the areas that that Home Depot plays into, especially as it relates to housing. Right. So their uh, annual comp for 2018 came in at 5.2%. They're guiding to a 5% comp for next year. So for the most part, I would say it's flat. It's not mm-hmm. really down. It's still a strong number, particularly if you think about how the other retailers are guiding. Um, I think it's uh, pretty good. And I think what separates them maybe from some of the other housing-related stocks is that they really focus on the repair and remodel right. business. And that continues to grow at a slower rate, but it is still growing. And the housing stock in the U.S. is quite old. Uh, so you'll you'll need people to start doing renovations. And you also have a demographic shift. You have older people aging in home, so they need to do remodeling so that they can live there. And you also have millennials going in to maybe smaller, older homes because that's all they can afford. And then again, renovating them. So I, I'm always curious, too. I have a couple um, family members who mm-hmm. are contractors and work in the business. And yeah, they are busy as can be. I mean, mm-hmm. part of the problem is they can't find workers to do yes. um, renovations and so on and so forth. But if we start to see the economy slow down, I always remember, like we talk about Home Depot, they say, well, or, or we've heard that they'll do, they still continue to do well because people, rather than maybe buying new homes, are still going to continue to invest right. in Right. I homes. think it's twofold versus other discretionary retail. One, yeah, you stay where you are, so you have to fix it. But also, if something breaks, home improvement-wise, usually it's imperative that you fix it. It's not an option to wait to fix your boiler or water heater or whatever. Right. Versus it is an option (laughs) to wait when your couch is old and you just don't like it. You don't have to buy it right away. All right, so Seema, tomorrow morning we hear from Lowe's. Am I reading that right? So what do we expect there? So Lowe's generally uh, underperforms Home Depot. So I think estimates for Lowe's uh, same-store sales have come down after Home Depot this morning. I think they're closer to 1%. I uh, would agree. I think that their same-store sales will likely be weak. But I'm more concerned that they're trying to initiate this turnaround uh, during a time when there might be some contraction Mm. in the market as a whole. Like they They underperformed when they had this bullish tailwind. So I'm concerned... That after they get past the low-hanging fruit, maybe you get some margin upside. How do they then drive the next stage of the turnaround if, you know, they can't drive the top line? I have to say, Jason, I was saying to Seema when she walked in, I'm like, oh my gosh, I always forget. Home Depot is an almost $212 billion market cap company. <laughs> I mean, they are tremendous. Huge. Yes. Yeah, I mean that it's. I mean, I I I know a little bit about it only having lived in Atlanta and sort of seen that company grow. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, Carol, when we were down in Atlanta, we saw some of the largesse that that company created 
in the form of Arthur Blank. Right. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. like he's become one of the you know most important people in in, in that economy. And and so is this is this a, a rivalry that's not so much one anymore, Seema? Or what? Do you in make of in that? my view, I, I I would say that yes, I don't think it's a rivalry that is one company equally pitted against the yeah. other. I think that Home Depot had invested in the business and the infrastructure and the supply chain and continues to do so. So they were already ahead of the game uh, relative to Lowe's. Lowe's is trying to do, I would say, maybe stage one of that infrastructure spend. And so I think they remain behind. Uh, and so it'll be harder for them to close the gap, particularly if there is any macro slowdown. And I can't and both remember. those stocks are up this year. It's interesting. To yeah. yeah, Lowe's is up on the new management, and I, I would say the optimism that he'll yeah. be able to turn around and execute and drive margin. And what's fascinating, as you mentioned, I can't remember if you said it on air too, but I know before we got going. I mean, Home Depot they do a lot of stuff online. They do a lot of stuff online. Seven point nine percent of their sales is online. And of one hundred eight billion, that's actually larger than a lot of the retailers. That's pretty wild. All right, good stuff. Uh, Seema, thank you so thank much. You. Good to get some time with you. Seema Shah, she's Senior Consumer Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. George Schulte is back with us, founder of Schulte Asset Management, based in Rybrook, New York, making his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York on this Tuesday. Nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Great to be back. So I'm looking at the markets. Uh, we're a little changed uh, off our lows, uh, but overall a little changed in the in the markets. Where do you see the next trend when it comes to stocks? So we're clearly at the late stage of a bull market. Um, and, you know, I think the Fed is struggling with raising interest rates and struggling with quantitative tightening. Uh, so, you know, future rate raises right now are on hold while the economy continues to do well, while the equity market has recovered from a pretty volatile and turbulent time in December and, and uh, November. But I think you're still continuing uh, along the path of quantitative tightening. So I think right now, you know, in my view, it's become more of a stock picker's market than it was before. There are some companies that are extremely overvalued, and there are other ones that are extremely cheap. So I think it's risky to just throw money blindly at the market through ETFs and other passive strategies. But there are interesting values to be had if you have the time and the effort and ability to do analysis on companies. So tell us what you're finding out there, George. What, give us some examples. So we found, uh, and we've been talking about coal companies for a number of months mm. and quarters uh, with our clients. Um, we like the Met Coal producers. One of them is called Contura Energy. It just remerged with its former affiliate uh, called Alpha Natural Resources. The combined company, um, after eliminating about $8 billion in debt through a bankruptcy, uh, after emerging from that process in late 2016, 
Uh, now the company only has about $300 million of debt left. It trades at a total enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of about 2.5 times, has just under $3, or $3 billion of revenue with almost $600 million of EBITDA. We think it's cheap, excitingly cheap, at, at two and a half times EBITDA. And you know the board and management team are very shareholder friendly there. They paid $100 million in special dividends in 2017. They've also repurchased $50 million in stock. And they just guided to the market that they plan uh, to, to make another significant shareholder distribution later this year. So do you like the company and the fundamentals? <laughs> There's a lot of uh, kind of looking at the balance sheet. And I understand that, which you have to do. But in terms of they provide coal mining services, what exactly do they do? And what is it about that business that you like? So Contura makes... in a world where I feel like we're backing off of... Yeah, and yeah, and that's that that's stuff. a twist with with this company as well as a number of other operators in the coal space. So it, it focuses on met coal, which is metallurgical coal. It's used to make steel, which is an important part of every economy. Everything. And so in the U.S. here, yeah, you know, growth is slowing. Uh, Powell this morning said, you know, he's estimating two and a half percent growth this year, but you're still seeing a growing economy. And frankly, we think that there's a good chance that uh, perhaps there's an infrastructure build. Or you know, an infrastructure bill right, with right. some major mm-hmm. infrastructure bill coming or build coming afterwards in the United States. We think it's necessary, but you need steel for the economy to operate, and you can't make steel without coal. So these are, are met coal producers. So we like them. We think people have thrown out coal. You know, the proverbial baby with the bathwater. Just got rid of all of it because of the environmental fears about it. We got to ask him about Tesla. Jason and I have both been kind of eagerly waiting to ask you about it because it, it doesn't seem like a day goes by without something, or at least a week, uh, pertaining to the Elon. Gift Musk. He keeps on giving or taking. <laughs> depending on I tweeted at Elon Musk this morning to help save my transit problems. Um, but you have been known for shorting Tesla. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. How long have you been? How long have you been a short on Tesla? It's been it's, a little bit over a year, okay. um, and it's been a volatile stock. I mean, you know, usually when a company you know commits securities fraud and its executive you know gets sued by the SEC, that's sort of the worst news you can possibly get. Um, here, he kind of pulled the rabbit out of the hat by settling with the SEC uh, with a you know kind of a de minimis fine versus his net worth of about twenty million dollars. Um, but he went right back at it again, you know, with the tweeting. And uh, I'm surprised it took the SEC this long because, you know, the rule was that he was not allowed to tweet guidance about the company without getting pre-approval from his compliance department. He's been doing it, you know, but I think the, the, the latest few tweets were, were, were really, you know, over the top where he, he basically gave guidance for 500,000 cars this year. So what do you do at this point with the with that stock? Are you expanding your short position? Are you staying where you are? How do you play it? We're staying put. I mean, right now the company, you know, it, it's it's done better than a lot of people expect, and I think mm-hmm. the equity market will give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, it's got a big maturity coming up in March, right? You know, but but uh, and that'll drain a certain amount of cash off the balance sheet. But it, but it is a high growth, risky venture, and I think on balance. You know, with the corporate governance problems they have, I think it, it's still a good short. There was some crazy speculation, Jason, actually with one of our colleagues here at Bloomberg, and I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you, George, but it was like, you almost wonder if he's doing this because 
he doesn't necessarily want to step down. I'm just pl- I'm just playing crazy speculation, but he's got a lot on his plate with the different companies that he's involved in. And you do wonder whether, um, or th- like I said, in our crazy he wants speculative to get forced world, down. yes, <laughs> it's a spectacular way, you know, shot to the moon, maybe. I don't you know. know. I don't know. It's just kind of a, f- a fascinating way to think about it. Um, I want to get to Pacific Gas and Electric. Okay. Um, also, a story. Stay tuned for the magazine because there's something uh, fascinating that we're doing uh, this week. Um, you like this name? So we think it's another great short. It's a great short, yeah. So this company has, uh, you know, it's I'm in bankruptcy. Like, whew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was know like, where that was going. <laughs> yeah, it trades at about $18, $18.50 a share. Yeah. Um, $30 billion in wildfire liabilities yeah. estimated. Maybe it's a little bit lower, you know, but that estimate, importantly, doesn't include uninsured claims that will likely surface in the bankruptcy. It also doesn't include a whole host of other potential liabilities. For instance, lease rejection claims, um, accounts payable liabilities, etc. Usually, when companies go bankrupt, are you talking about some of the solar renewables? I mean, pushback or yes, yes, they have a lot of above market contracts that could be rejected. In total, the amount is about forty billion dollars in potential claims there. So, if you add it all up together, we're talking about a hundred billion in liabilities that PG&E does. So, I don't think equity holders are going to walk away with much there. Yeah, yeah the math just doesn't kind of add up there. George, really great to get you back here. Thanks we'll for talk having to me. you again. George Schultze, he's founder of Schultze Asset Management, based in Rybrook, New York, in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.